I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we are continuing in our sermon series on the Gospel of John, a theme of which is that you may believe. Uh, no matter what you believe about Jesus this morning, it's almost certain that our view of Jesus is too small. When we think about all that God has done by the word, all that he continues to do through the word, we realize quickly that we are in no danger of thinking too highly of Christ. Last week we saw that Christ is eternal. We see his eternality and that there has never been a time when Christ did not exist. That he has always been in relationship with God. He has always been God. And that he holds all things together as the creator of the universe. The first few verses of John really do expand our vision of Christ. But it doesn't stop there. Now, in our text, John introduces us to Christ as the Lord of life and the light of the world. Life and light. Follow along with me as I read from John chapter 1. For the sake of context, we'll begin reading in verse 1. We'll go down to verse 13. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe in, believe through him. He was not the light, but came, bear, came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. May God bless the reading of his word. We're going to see uh, three things in our text this morning. First, first thing we see in our text is we see Christ revealed. We see Christ revealed as life and light. Uh, look back at verse 4. In him, that is in the word, in 
Christ was life. Life, you will notice, is not necessarily mediated through the word, but is in the word. In him was life. In other words, life is not simply what Christ offers. It's who Christ is. Life is not simply what Christ offers. It's who Christ is. Jesus Christ is life. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Christ holds out to his own the offer of life, but he does so because he is life. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the what? Life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In him was life. What do we mean when we speak of life? You know, John uses the term life 36 times in his gospel account. It's a very important term for John. But what does he mean by it? What does he mean by life? Is he referring to physical life? Or is he referring to spiritual life? Is he referring to Christ's involvement in creation, for example? Or is he referring to Christ's involvement in in raising the dead to life? In other words, salvation. I don't think we are intended to choose between the two. I don't, I don't think this is a, an either-or situation, but a both-and situation. When, when John says that in him was life, he's, he's not saying that Christ was life in the past, but that he's no longer life now. Or else all the times that, that John has used the word was up to this point where he's been talking in the in the, the past tense would indicate that the word was in the beginning, but he's not now. And that he was with God, but that he's not now. And that he was God, but that he's not now. Now, John is looking at the present in light of who Christ is and has always been. The life that was in the word, is still in the word. He's not only the creator of physical life, but he's also the creator of spiritual life. The the same Christ who, who brought about life in the beginning is the same Christ who brings life to all who believe in him today. In him was and is life. In John 5, verse 24, Jesus says, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has 
eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. We we cannot live for a second without the life of Christ. Uh, Apart from believing in Jesus, we are all dead. And if we want to truly live, then we need his gift of life. But not just his gift of life. Because Jesus Christ is life, we cannot simply say that all we need is is life. No, we need Christ. Life is never disconnected from Christ. The two go together. Life and Christ. Here's how John puts it in, in 1 John 5, verses 11 to 12. John there says, God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So there's a connection there. Life and the Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's pretty simple. If if you have Jesus, then you have life. And if you reject Jesus, then you're rejecting what? Life. John 5, verse 40. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. What a devastating picture of someone who wants what Jesus has to offer, but who doesn't want Jesus. What a devastating picture of someone who wants Jesus for what he can do for them, but who doesn't want Jesus for Jesus. Such a person will not receive life. They'll forego life if it means that they have to have Jesus. But if we have Jesus, this is the flip side of that, if we have Jesus, if if he is in us and, and we are in him, if we are united to Christ by faith, then we are in life and life is in us. Right? In you is life. Because you are united to the Lord of life. You see how that works? Right? One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. There, there is a beautiful, marvelous picture of someone who wants Jesus for Jesus, who who wants Jesus not simply for what he can do for them, but he wants Jesus for Jesus. Such a person has already received the promise of life. Uh, John continues in verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light 
of men. By nature, we are not only spiritually dead, we're also spiritually blind. We don't have a lot going for us by nature. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, uh, says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We do not naturally see Christ as supremely valuable. We do not naturally see his sacrifice as precious. We do not naturally see fellowship with him as our greatest treasure. By nature, we are blind to these things. By nature, we walk in darkness. If we have any hope of seeing these things at all and receiving them, we must have life. The life was the light of men. One one pastor put it this way. Uh, New life brings light. New life makes seeing possible. When death is replaced with life, darkness is replaced with light. If you look around at the people in your school, your work, your your leisure, there are more than likely a number of people who are dead. Now, physically, they're fine. You know, they're, they're walking around, they're, they're living, they're breathing, they're, they're fine, but they're dead spiritually. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand, Matthew 13, verse 13 says. In order for them to see the supreme value of knowing and treasuring Christ, they need to be made alive. They will not see unless Christ has raised them from death to life. If I'm dead, there's no seeing happening. Only when I am brought from death to life, only when I'm in the realm of the living, can I open my eyes and see. Thankfully, this is a picture of Christ. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There's an obvious connection here to the the creation account in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, God spoke into the darkness that that covered the, the face of the deep and said, let there be light. And what happened? There was Light. But John here isn't strictly talking about Christ's physical light. Does it also apply to Christ's physical light? Yes, but it, it, there, there's a reference here to his spiritual light. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give 
the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Right, so, so the, the, the light on the, the, the first act of creation, well, when God said, let there be light, it's not, not just talking about, you know, the, the, the light that we see around us, but the, the light that shines in here. Let there be light, and all of a sudden there's light and we can see. And Christ is that light. Christ is the light that is shining in the spiritual darkness. John 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light of life. And what is the result in verse 9? The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So not only does the, the light shine in the darkness, but it gives light to everyone. There was not a single person who has not had this light shine on them. In the first chapter of Romans, the Apostle Paul tells us that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. Romans 1 verse 20, and the same can go for the light of the world. The light has given light to everyone. That light has come into the world and has given light to all people so that all people are without excuse. The, The word shines here is in the present tense, which means that this is an action still in process. Literally, the the light continually shines in the darkness. This wasn't just something that that God did in the past. It wasn't a one-time action. No, God continues to shine the light of Christ upon every crevice of man's darkened heart. And what a hope that is. Right, look, look, at the, look at the hope at the end of verse 5. The darkness has not overcome it. Guess what? The darkness does not win. The darkness does not win. I, I know that's hard to believe sometimes. But it's true. You know, when a, a loved one is diagnosed with cancer, or when nations are at war, or when natural disasters do their worst, or when someone we know is is crippled with depression, or when Christians are are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus, or or when a a good friend of ours refuses to believe in Jesus, or, you know, we've got a a child, a a grandchild, a loved one who gets in a car accident, you know, whatever the case may be, can seem like in those moments that the darkness is winning, but the darkness does not win. Now, this doesn't mean that the darkness doesn't exist. 
No, John is actually being quite realistic here. Of course there is darkness, but darkness, the the, the fallen world of sin, the, the world in rebellion against its creator, will not prove victorious. It won't. In the, in the fight between light and darkness, light is going to win. Sometimes it doesn't seem that way. Right? But we know the end of the story. We, we know how it all turns out. When, when, we, when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we know that it's not the end. Light will not be overcome by darkness. It won't. And how can we be so sure? Now, why can we be confident that the darkness will not win? Because we believe in a real baby boy who was born in a manger in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Because we believe that the light really did shine in the darkness, according to Isaiah verse uh, chapter 9, verse 2, that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. We, we believe that that actually happened. Because we believe that Jesus Christ, the light of the world, lived and died, and yet the darkness did not win. Oh, oh, it seemed like it on, on the, the Saturday between Good Friday, Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, right? It, it seemed like the darkness had snuffed out the light of the world, right? But on Resurrection Sunday, there was no doubt that the darkness would not win. If God can summon light with a word in the midst of a universe of darkness, then there is no dark corner in his world that that God cannot shine his light. I think of anything in the public sector that seems unredeemable right now. There is... Nothing, no dark corner in God's world that God cannot shine his light. The the light has come in the person of Jesus Christ and the light will continue to shine until the earth is filled with the glory of the Lord. Now that word overcome, it can also mean uh, to understand. Hence why the King James Version renders verse 5 in this way. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And this brings us to the second thing we see in our text. So, so first we see that Christ is revealed as the Lord of life and the light of the world. Secondly, we see Christ rejected. We see Christ rejected. Look at verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. That seems absurd, doesn't it? 
Uh, a poor family was farming some land during the Depression. There was one son in his family, and his parents wanted the best for him. So they scrimped and saved so that they could send him to college. After he had been gone about a year or so, the parents, who loved him very much, wanted to see him again. So again, they, they saved and sold some things and went to visit their son. They arrived on campus poorly dressed in their farm clothes. Not saying that farm clothes are poorly dressed, guys. Don't worry. And seeing their, their son with some other boys, the father ran over to him. Son, son, it's your father. The son looked at his father without showing any sign of recognition. The father said again, Son, it's your father and mother. We've come to see you. The boy, perhaps embarrassed by his parents' poverty, turned to the other students and said, I don't know who this is. He must be crazy. How absurd. But how much more absurd is the truth of verse 11? He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He was rejected by, the, by, by those who would have died on the spot had Christ not veiled his glory in flesh. <laughs> he was rejected by those whom he spoke into existence. Uh, the Pharisees despised him. The scribes debated him. The Sadducees loathed him. The chief priests accused him. The disciples doubted him. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. Herod harassed him. Pilate washed his hands of him. The soldiers beat him, and the Romans finally crucified him. He came to his own, and they rejected him. What is amazing is Christ continued shining in the darkness, even in the face of such rejection. And, and, and so, so it is today that, you know, 2,000 years of, of the Holy Spirit's witness through, through godly men and women of faith continues to, to bring about rejection. And, and yet we still see 2,000 years later, Christ continued shining in the darkness. And this brings us to, to the last thing we see in our text so, so we see Christ revealed, we see Christ rejected. Lastly, we see Christ received. We see Christ received. Look at verses 12 to 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There's a receiving of the Son. At last. 
Right? Christ came to his own people, but they didn't receive him. They, they were dead and they were blind to who Christ was, but there were some who received him. There, there were some who believed in the name of Christ, the ones who were born of God. And thus we see God's answer to, to the deadness, to the, to the blindness and, and darkness of the world. It, it's the new birth. The new birth is God's answer. Right, what, what does Jesus say to Nicodemus in, in John 3, verse 3? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He can't see it. Right? If you can't see the kingdom of God, you're not going to be able to enter the kingdom of God. Right? Everything hangs on being born again. Right? You're, you're, you're raised from death to life so that you can see and then seeing so that you can, you can enter. Right? Without being born again, we are dead and we're blind. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to lay down his life for us. And he has caused us to be born again to a living hope so that we can see him and receive him. Right? It should completely astound us that God, the creator of all things, who upholds all things by the word of his power, should enable us who have rejected him to become his children. Right? If it was absurd that, that we should reject the king of the universe in the first place, how much more absurd is it for the king of the universe to receive us, rebels, into his family as sons and daughters? And, 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 and it's, not, it's not absurdity in God's economy. It's, it's the father's plan from before the foundation of the world. Those who receive the light, those who receive Christ, that they would become children of God. Can consider for a moment what that means, being, being children of God. Being God's children means that we can call God Father. More specifically, we can address God as Abba, Father. In Galatians 4, verses 6 to 7, the Apostle Paul writes, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That the, the cry this, this cry of Abba, Father, is being implanted into our hearts by Christ. It, it wouldn't have been in there apart from Christ. All right, but then, then turn over to, to uh, 1 John chapter 3. You know, I, I said last week that John and, and 1 John are, are, are very similar. Well, in the, the same John who composed the gospel account, also wrote this, this letter later on in life. And apparently John never got over the wonder of becoming uh, children of God. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, John writes, See what kind of love the Father has given to us 
that we should be called children of God, and so we are. God, if we have believed in Jesus, this this ought to be the refrain of our lives. We, We are children of God. But what is most amazing about this is that Christ was not obligated in the slightest to bring us into the family of God. Right? God did, did not have to adopt us. Right? God wasn't lonely as, uh, as though he, he needed you know, more, more family members to, to kind of make his family complete. No, because he loved us, he made us his children. What a wonder. But then John follows up his statement of wonder here in, in 1 John with a, a statement of even greater wonder. 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Do you see John is is holding out to to all believers in Jesus the future hope of becoming like the risen Christ himself? Because we are children of God, we will be like Christ in glory. This, This truth ought to pervade every facet of our lives. It should it should affect how we how we interact with people because we're we're interacting with with with, with future what immortals <laughs> C.S. Lewis uh, preached a great sermon at the, the Church of St. Mary the Virgin um, in Magdalene College in Oxford in 1941. Uh, the sermon was titled The Weight of Glory These words closed that sermon. Said it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, culture, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This is 
He's a people made in the image of God who will receive the, the same wonder, the same splendor as children of God. The, the gospel does that. The gospel can turn a mere mortal into an immortal being. The gospel can turn an enemy of God into a child of God. It's all a work of Christ. Do you see the simplicity of the gospel in verse 13? We aren't children of God through blood, that is through lineage, or through the will of the flesh, or through the will of man, but through God. A person may be able to, to trace their genealogy back to like Martin Luther or even further back to Augustine or, or even to you know the Apostle Peter himself, but it will not save them. And a person's parents and, and grandparents and, and great-grandparents may have all been followers of Jesus, but that alone is not the way to become a child of God. A person can try as hard as they want to be a good enough person, but it will not save them. Why? Because salvation is not achieved in these ways. What does the text say? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Right? Children born not, not through, not through blood, not through the will of the flesh or, or the will of man, but of God. Salvation is all of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Becoming one of God's own comes by believing who Jesus is and receiving him as your own. The, the eternal creator who became one of us took our sins upon himself and paid for them. He was resurrected and now sits at the Father's right hand. Do, do we believe in his name? Do, do we believe in him? That, that's the question. Do we believe? Ha, have we received Christ as our Lord, our Savior, our life and our light? That's at this point that I, I just want to quickly circle back to verses 6 to 8. I don't, I don't just want to leave them there. It is kind of an interesting interjection, but I, I do believe it's, it's intentional. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. All right, so, so in light of, of all that we've, we've seen up until this point about Christ being revealed and rejected and received, after Christ has sovereignly and graciously caused us to be born again to a living hope, 
after we have been raised from death to life, after our eyes have been opened to who Christ really is, what is the responsibility of God's children? To bear witness about the light. To bear witness about the light so that all might believe. Now, now we'll, we'll see more about uh, the, the witness of, of John the Baptist in, in a couple of weeks. But what is important in these verses is the fact that, that the God who saves is also the God who sends. The God who saves is, is, the, is also the God who sends. God provides the foundation of our salvation in Jesus Christ, but he provides the, the means of our salvation in those whom he sends. Believing in the light comes through witnessing to the light. Right, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We are Christ's witnesses, ultimately, to the end of the earth. There, there is no other way. Romans 10. <coughs> Excuse me, Romans 10, verses 14 to 17. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And then down to verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This, this is God's program. We haven't just been saved. We've been sent, sent to bear witness to, to how Christ alone has replaced our deadness with life and, and our blindness with light. So if we have, if we have not yet done so, the, the text is clear. May we come to Christ and believe in him and receive him today. And after doing so, may we bear witness to the Lord of life and the light of the world so that all may repent and believe and trust and obey and worship and rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, would shine in our hearts today. That you would convict us of sin. That you would lead us to the cross. That you would give us assurance of salvation. And that you send us out from this place. That we might share this light in a world that is chasing after darkness. We thank you for what you've shown us, for what you've spoken to us, and for all that we have in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.